Good evening all, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Thank you for taking a prime time out of your uh, summer week here to come spend an evening with us and hopefully learn. And as always, what we'll do is we'll set the context of the passage and then we'll come back and say, how does this apply to us here today? So this is pretty straightforward here tonight. 2 Samuel chapter 5 is David's reign as king being solidified politically. So keep that back in your mind. Chapter 5 is David's reign as king being solidified politically. And 2 Samuel 6 is David's reign as king being solidified spiritually. Chapter 5 is political, chapter 6 is spiritual. One of the key verses you'll see tonight is verse 10 of chapter 5, where it says, So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. This is the continual progression of David becoming stronger. We mentioned that last week in 2 Samuel 3, verse 1. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. We're seeing David growing spiritually, David growing militarily, David growing politically as king. So keep that in the back of your mind. That sets the tone for what we're going to be going through tonight. Let's start in verse 1, please, of chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old and began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Please note verses 4 to 5 there. It's kind of rare to find that type of specific dates. Uh, David died when he was 70 years old. Please remember when you're reading through the history books in the Old Testament, God is not so much concerned on dates as what he's concerned mostly about is do you see his hand moving in things. This is completely different from our historical perspective. We're very big on memorizing dates, the orders of precedence, and things like that. From a biblical standpoint, God is saying what's most important is how did I move in these kings? How did I move in the nation of Israel? How was I glorified? That's what matters most in dealing with the covenant. But you do see there in verses 4 and 5 a little bit of some dates. It kind of sets the tone there a little bit. Now, back up, though, to verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Please remember, at this time, he's really kind of only ruling over Judah. The rest of the tribes are under Ishbosheth, Saul's son. Ishbosheth was assassinated last week. So now all the tribes come to David. This is important to note, and I believe... This is the last time we have to mention this point, because we've mentioned this point, I think, every Wednesday for the last month, that David became king not by force, not by manipulation. David did not take the throne from Saul. God gave it to him. That's very important to note, that David was not a rebel that assassinated Saul, got rid of him, and assassinated his son so he could become king. The Lord gave David the kingdom just like he said he would. Verse 1, all these tribes of Israel came to David on their own accord to say, you are now going to be our king. Please note in verse 2, the emphasis of the word you. Also in times past when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them into the Lord, into, in, excuse me, brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. They see it. They see it was David. Now this leads to two quick application points. There's a fleshly desire in all of us of how much we want to be noticed and appreciated. It's a fleshly desire rooted deep in us to be seen. It just is. 
my kids, my, especially my youngest one, the twins, are growing up in a different generation. You know, when obviously I grew up, there was uh, people would take pictures, but you had to go get the film developed. It was completely different. Nowadays, you take a picture, it's right there on your phone. And I'm not exaggerating. Every time one of my girls draw a picture, Dad, take a picture of it. Okay, take a picture of it. Dad, show me. We have to take a picture. We have to immediately show them the picture of what is standing right in real life, right in front of us. And they say, Dad, take a picture of us. They dressed up uh, today. One was Belle and one was, I can't remember, Elsa, I think. And Dad, take a picture of us. Show us. They want to be noticed. They want that picture of them. It happens when your kids are little. They build something. Dad, come see this. They're doing some, something special with sports. Dad, come watch. We want to be noticed. We want to be appreciated. Now we go get a real job. And you find out sometimes with those real jobs that your boss does not care about you. No matter how much they tell you in the interview, we're a family company and we just really are just out there for everybody. And you realize, nope, they're just really paying me. So you sit there doing your job and you think, does anybody notice? Does anybody appreciate? Now that you expect that from the world. But then you go serve at church. Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday. And you stop and you think, does anybody notice? Does anybody appreciate? We want to be noticed. We want to be appreciated. It's something that we want. 1 Timothy 4.15 says this, Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. That over time, people see your growth and walk in relationship with the Lord. That's the first point. The people eventually saw the Lord's hand on David. Now, it took years, folks. Years. But eventually the people on their own free will, not under forced manipulation, come and say, David, we realize now, verse 2, you were the one that God was using, and you really were the one that was taking care of Israel. So if you're in that position of wanting to be noticed and appreciated, may I just encourage you, be patient. Do not force it. Do not manipulate it. Do not push it. Do not go out there and try to make yourself known. Just go out there and serve the Lord for his glory. Which takes me to point number two. As you wait to be noticed and appreciated, you will find out that it doesn't matter that you're seen. It just doesn't matter. What matters is God gets the glory. Matthew 5, verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that the men may see your good works. See? See your good works. Finally, I'm appreciated. And glorify your Father in heaven. So they see you, and then they always say glory to God. Not see you and say thank you. Sometimes it's see you in glory to God. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 9, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, not let the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. So if you want to be glorying about something, glorying the fact that God knows you. That's amazing. And a great verse out of Proverbs, Let another man praise you and not your own mouth a stranger and not your own lips. David is a great example of just patiently waiting on the Lord and in God's time frame, he took care of everything. So David is now anointed over everything, all of Israel. He was anointed as a youth by Samuel. He was anointed over Judah and now he is anointed over everything. Verse three, the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. God kept his word. Just like God promised David, it has now happened. And now you see it coming to full uh, results of what the Lord had planned and what the Lord had accorded right there. So, patient and allowing the Lord to move. Now the king needs a place 
Verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites and the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. Now David said on that day, Whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore they say, The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David, and David built all around it from the Milo and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with them. Please remember, if you were a Jew reading this, you're kind of wondering how David became the great King David that all the other kings came from. Well, this is how it's showing you. We just saw that. And now you're kind of wondering, how did Jerusalem become, if you will, the capital? That's part of just even American history. How did Washington, D.C. become the capital of the United States? How did Jerusalem become? Now, it's important to note the details of the city of Jerusalem. It's very small. If you're, if you're already bored in the message, go to the back of your Bible, and you should have a little map. And usually at the back of your Bible, you have a map, and it'll show you the city of Jerusalem, and it'll say, at the time of David. And you'll see that the city of David at this point, Jerusalem, it's just acres. It's just this tiny, little nothing. But here's the deal. It's elevated. It's rugged terrain. And it had a water supply. That's why Jerusalem is so important. It's elevated up, completely rugged terrain, with its own water supply. In Joshua 15, Jerusalem is too strong. Israel can't take it. In Judges chapter 1, Israel is too strong. Israel is too weak to take it. They couldn't. Finally, we find out Joab is the one in 1 Chronicles that leads the charge and takes Jerusalem, and it solidifies him as the military leader. And that's what we see going on here in 1 Chronicles. Who are the Jebusites? The Jebusites are descendants of Canaan. They kind of had this stronghold right here, and no one could take the city. Finally, Joab leads the charge and gets it. Real quick side point here, where it's talking about the Milo, if you kind of look at that in verse 9. This is a term you see throughout the history books. This is a series of walls, terraces that were built on a slope, and they kind of kept adding stone to it. If you've ever seen anything with a sloped area and rugged terrain, you kept adding dirt and stone to make it more level, and they could then build houses on it, and that was something that was going on at that time. Why is this emphasis given? Once again, Jerusalem, you want to know why it became the capital. This is the city of David, and also Jerusalem is a key city in future Bible prophecy. If you're going to follow one city, just follow Jerusalem. I know we like to think that Washington's the most important city in the world, and the reality is it's really Jerusalem. Keep your eyes on Jerusalem. That's why Psalm 122 says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I highly encourage you, always keep one eye on what's going on over in Israel. Jesus returns on uh, the Mount of Olives there, right near Jerusalem. He rules and reigns from Zion during the millennial reign. So Jerusalem becomes, in a little bit, I should say a little bit, prophetically speaking in a little bit, becomes the center of the world. So it's very, very important to note Jerusalem. It's important in the past. It's important right now in the present. Talk about a city divided and constantly under attack in some ways. And what it has in store for it prophetically in the future is even more so than what we could ever imagine. Jerusalem is vitally important, and that's why there's some emphasis given here to show how Jerusalem became the capital of Israel through David and Joab's rule in that as well. Let's pause real quick. We want to show you once again David solidifying his rule as king politically. Now he has his capital city. We're going to see here in the next section David solidifying his rule politically as well, but let's pause real quick. Any quick questions, comments about anything before we go on? Josh? Uh, what is the middle of in verse 9? 
right, that middle, that is that, I was mentioning earlier there, it is an area of terraces and walls. It's built on a slope, and they kept adding dirt and stone to it to make it flatter, so therefore they could have more area to put houses and stuff. So, and there's still um, remnants of it. If you want to get online, uh, go home, Google it. You can see, excuse me, where they have dug up sections of it, and you can kind of see what it looks like. Somebody else had a hand up, I thought. Yeah, Christina. It's an insult towards David. Basically saying here, you should not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you. David, you are so weak that blind people and lame people would be able to defeat you. It's just an insult towards David. So what David does now is he flips it around on them, and that's why he says later on in verse 8, David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, he calls them the, lie, the lame and the blind. So he, it's just the Jebusites throwing an insult at David, saying that you're so weak that lame people and blind people could defeat you. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? Okay. So now we're introduced to a guy that you may think is really not a big deal, but he actually is. He's, he's a main player here with David's reign, and he's a main player with Solomon's reign. His name is Hiram, verse 11. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he'd come from Hebron. Also more sons and daughters were born to David. Now these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shammua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibar, Elusha, Nephig, Japhia, Eleshema, Elida, and Eliphath. Now Hiram, once again, is important. Hiram is important because David gets materials from Hiram to build his own uh, area, and also Solomon gets materials from Hiram. Once again, he's the king of Tyre. And Tyre, if you look once again on your maps in the back of your Bible, it's to the north of Jerusalem along the Mediterranean coast. They were traders, so they had a lot more access to materials. Plus, they also had the cedars of Lebanon up there, which Israel did not have access to. If you look at any type of topography of Israel, you'll see that they did not have this type of lumber that they did. So by him having a relationship with David, you see David become politically stronger that these people are, are seeing God's hand and Hiram actually has this, quite this relationship with David and Solomon. It's kind of neat to see how this plays out throughout the rest of the history books. But they'll send them supplies as you see there in verse um, 11 the carpenters and the masons. When Solomon comes to build the temple basically he says I need the wood and so he says I'll send you the wood. You send me the wheat so they make a trade there. And also Solomon says, I need your manpower because our people don't know how to deal with this lumber like you do. And so they send the workers down to go as well. So he's being introduced here to show the importance of his role that's going to come later on. And real quick, we, we mentioned this last week, so I'll mention it very quickly. Verse 13, there is no way to defend verse 13, the concubines and the wives. This is going to start becoming a problem. Remember, anytime you see in the Bible... A guy having more than one wife or concubines, it always becomes an issue. And we're going to see it finally become an issue here in 2 Samuel 6 and later on becomes an even bigger issue as well as this goes on. Just because the Bible records the facts of it doesn't mean God is okay with it. The facts are recorded that David had wives and concubines and their names are mentioned. But it does not mean that God was okay with it in any way whatsoever. Always remember that in the back of your mind. So David has now become politically strong with, with foreigners. Uh, he's become politically strong within his own country. And he's become this idea of a capital. We have one last thing for him to become strong politically, and that's militarily now strong. Verse 17. 
Now when the Philistines heard that they anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Please remember, the Philistines had just defeated Israel at the end of 1 Samuel. They weren't concerned about Israel. Israel then split to an extent. They had David with Judah and then Ishbosheth. So from the Philistines' standpoint, this is not a concern. David's got one tribe. Ishbosheth's got the others. Well, now that Israel is united under David, and they know how much of a warrior David is, all of a sudden the Philistines said, okay, Israel's getting to be a little bit too big here, too much. It's time for us now to come down and take care of them. So David now has to militarily lead Israel as a united nation against the Philistines. But I want you to note the detail here. And this is a point we've mentioned before, so just keep in the back of your mind. When God goes into deep detail, for example, with this battle, why does he do that? I think it's to show you the picture of how he works in many ways. So later on now in 2 Samuel and the first and second Kings, when it says that Israel went out to war or something like that, the assumption is that these were godly kings. They were seeking wisdom just like David is seeking wisdom here. The Bible goes into deep detail the first time to show you what the plan was every other time that it happened. Note the difference between David and Saul. Saul made rash oaths, if you remember correctly. Saul would just kind of shoot from the hip. David is continually seeking God on this. This is the difference between. So, verse 19. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim, which Baal-perazim means breakthrough. 21, and they left their images there, and David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, and he said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come up them in front of the mulberry trees. And that shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Now, I just want you to note some stuff here, and I, and I think this stuff is actually really important. It's really easy to read 17 through 25 and say, don't get it, don't know the locations, fine, David won, move on. But just note the layers here. First off, 19. David, seeking the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? Verse 23, David inquired of the Lord. David was constantly seeking the Lord's will. That's important to note. And please note the second time he sought the Lord's will. He does not just say, oh, I've done it once, I don't need to do it again. May I just encourage you, pray about everything. Seek the Lord about everything. Next thing. David gives God the credit. Verse 20. The Lord has broken through my enemies before me. Remember Saul would not give credit. Saul took credit. Remember the story where Jonathan defeated the Philistines and it says that Saul blew the trumpet? This is supposed to show you the difference between David and Saul. Saul did what he want when he wanted. David seeking the Lord and David is giving God the glory. Please also note in verse 20. So David went. Please note in verse 25. And David did so as the Lord commanded him. David is obedient. What good does it do to seek the Lord, get God's counsel, and then not do it? How many times have we as Christians sought the Lord, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Appreciate your advice. I'll take that into consideration, but this is what I'm going to go do. No, David sought the Lord, and the Lord led. 
One other thing I want you to note right here. Please note the battle plan was different. Verse 19. The Lord said, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. Jump down to verse 23. You shall not go up. It's the same army. They're in the valley of Rephaim in verse 22. They're in the valley of Rephaim in verse 18. Same army, same location, different battle plan. Allow the Lord to be unique on how he handles the same problem that you have. So one season of life, he may handle the problem this way. And another season of life, it may be the exact same problem. And God says, I want to handle it a different way. The Gospels record Jesus healing a blind man in three different ways. That's important to note. God sometimes deals with the same problem in different ways. And I think we can be a problem to the Lord if we come and say, well, I remember last time this is what we did at work, so let's do it again. David shows us keep praying about it, be obedient to it, and allow the Lord to sometimes work in a way that we did not see or expect. If you're the type of person that says, well, it always has to be this way, you're going to run into problems with the Lord. Allow the Lord to be unique in how he handles it. And one last point here, look at verse 21. They left their images there, that's their idols, and David and his men carried them away. I, I just find that funny. Their gods that they took into battle are weak and worthless, and they left them. Who leaves their God? I just find that kind of funny. That they are in such a hurry of defeat, in such a hurry of escape. Oh boy, we left our God. So somebody needs to go back and get him. David comes and takes these idols and carries them away. Just a real neat picture here how David sought the Lord militarily and how God provided, took care of him. David's obedience, David giving God the credit, and, and God moving in different ways. It really is supposed to show you the difference between how David worked and how Saul worked. And this is why David is a man after God's own heart. Now, part of the beauty of the Bible is it shows you all the warts of people too. Beginning here in 2 Samuel 6, David has a big wart on him on how he rules as king, which we're going to get to next. But the first chapter, chapter 5, is David solidifying his reign politically. And now in chapter 6 is David solidifying his reign spiritually. Before we get into chapter 6, any quick questions, comments about anything here? John. You know, verse 21, you mentioned that David and his men carried away the images or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, in mine, King James said, and, they, and there they left their images, and David and his men burned them. Burned them? Yeah, carrying them away implies you're keeping them, in my mind, but burning them, that's a, you're done. That's a definitely different thing. Um, I would say this, we see later on in Israel, and I believe it's with Josiah, if, my, if memory serves, that when they carried away the idols, it goes into more detail that they carried them out into the wilderness and threw them in a pit and burned them. It does say that later on. I believe it's with Josiah. So I would assume that that is carrying a different idea of carrying them away, meaning I'm getting rid of it. It's like I'm taking out the trash. Yeah, Kathy. Confiscated them. And here we have the King James and NLT going back and forth there a little bit there. Yes. Confiscate them sounds like they put a tag on them and put them in the bottom of the police basement for a trial later on or something like that. Which I love NLT. I do love NLT. I just want to let you know that. But that's what confiscate sounds like. Like, my kid was bad, so I confiscated his, uh, you know, Nerf gun or something like that. So, anybody else have anything about chapter 5 politically? Yeah, Amber. I just think it's cool throughout this whole entire thing about with David on how we get caught up so many times on our past and how we've messed up and how we've done things that we haven't. And we get so caught up in that that the devil allows our mind to think that we're not good enough 
for God's purpose and for God's works. Um, it's, I just think it's just a beautiful example of that on how, how many wives he had and how many concubines he had, that even though he was still sinning and doing things that he knew, obviously knew weren't good, God still used him for the glory of, for the glory of him. So I just want us not to get caught up in our bad things that we do, our sins that we do, because God still loves us, and he loves us and he will continue to use us for his good and his glory. Oh, I agree. God definitely will use. Um, I'm thankful that God uses sinners. There's no doubt about that. And thankful for that. Um, at the same time, too, and I, and I think Amber would agree with this point, though, it, the Bible does start to show, though, that these choices that David makes continually. And I agree, choices in the past Satan loves to bring up to create issues with. He loves to show you your past. And that's where you have to remember 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You know, we can go into all the verses of where your sins are put away as far as the east is from the west, or I believe it says in the book of Malachi where he drops them to the sea of remembrance. Our past sins are completely taken care of in Jesus Christ, and amen to that. We're a new creation in the Lord. What we see with David, though, sometimes with this, is he keeps on making that same sinful choice. And so that present sin starts to become an issue. I would never, ever take somebody's past and say, your past uh, keeps you from the love of God or, from, or serving him because you're a new creation in the Lord. But if somebody in the present day keeps on making that same choice, we have to step back and say, hold on here, buddy. Why is it that you keep going down this path? And this is what you see with David. It leads up to Bathsheba, that the guy just can't stop. He's possibly in his 50s at that time. And the whole Bathsheba thing leads to adultery and murder, and it affects his family, and that's where the issue comes with David. So, yeah, we're never picking on his past, but it's these present choices that David keeps making. I'm going to say, yeah, Marcus. First 24, when it's described in marching Yeah, that is a couple different things going on there. What it either means, and we don't know 100% for sure. Let's go back to 23 there. David inquired of the Lord. He said, you should not go up, circle around behind them and come up from them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. This can mean a couple different things. It either is something that their sound of them coming around behind them, and that is that idea of in the trees, it's going to elevate the sound. It's going to create distraction for the Philistines and it's something the Lord is doing as a distraction or it's something possibly supernatural where the Lord says that's my cue that's my sign to you when you start to see that sound come through that's why I'm leading you to go in so it's either something where they are using that as some type of distraction through the trees or the Lord looks like he's doing something supernatural with it that's the way I kind of take it there in 24 but it's kind of an interesting wording it really kind of is yeah. When you just read through it about David and the concubine, maybe I immediately thought of Solomon learned a lot from his dad. <laughs> he learned a lot of what not to do, yeah. And, and it continued on. Um, I, I go back to that point. Anytime you see multiple wives and concubines in the Bible, it creates problems. It really does. It creates those problems. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? All right. Okay. Chapter 6. And again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from them the name, excuse me, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abnadah, and which was on the hill in Uzzah, and Ahio, the sons of Abnadah, drove the new cart. And they brought it off 
says, they brought it out of the house of Ahadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of uh, fir wood and harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nachshon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took a hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of that place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. There's a lot here to unpack. You're going to have two perspectives in this chapter. The first half is the world's way, and then you're going to have God's way in the second half. The world's way makes sense. What you just read there, it makes sense. Bring the ark now to Jerusalem. This is where its home should be. And we should celebrate this. Dare I say we should have a party. This is a, this is a celebration to bring the ark back to where it's supposed to be. And we can use a cart. The Philistines used a cart in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And we're not just going to make it any cart. If you note the emphasis there twice, it says it's a new cart. We're not giving God some shabby cart. We're giving him a new cart. How can God not be in this? The excitement, the passion, these people love God, the numbers. This has to be completely, utterly right. And it was completely, utterly wrong. And here's a couple points. You can do the right thing the wrong way. They were trying to do something right. Bring the ark but they did it the wrong way. Your good intentions do not make you right with God. It does not matter what your intentions are. There is a certain way that God wants to do it. Sincerity does not replace obedience. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Now that's really hard in our present day society because there's a lot of times we stop and say, well, their heart was in the right spot. Jeremiah tells us your heart is deceitfully wicked. So therefore, if somebody says, I just really love God. And I, amen. I just love God so much. I don't, I don't really know if I need to go to church. And I don't really know if I need to read the Bible. And I don't, I don't really know if, if I would say so much of, of Jesus. I mean, I like Jesus, but I just love God. And I just love worship. And I love praise. And I love everything about it. They're sincere. They're passionate. And they're going straight to hell. This is what's hard, because in our society today, think of certain sometimes denominations or churches. We see the excitement. We see the passion. We see these people praising. We see the numbers. And we say, that church must be right. The building is beautiful. The grounds are beautiful. They have a new cart. But they're not doing anything biblically right. But it sure looks good. This is what's hard about this teaching. Verse 2 is trying to show you the emphasis. To bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. Just in case anybody forgets, they're not just bringing up a, a piece of wood covered in gold. They're bringing up, to an extent, the actual presence of God. Not just a cart, not just an ark, the actual presence of God. And this guy by the name of Abdadah, we know back in 1 Samuel 7, the ark was put at his house. He was a Levite. 
He seemed to know how to take care of it, but now his children are taking care of it. And as they're doing this, and set the scene here, folks. Verse 1, 30,000 people. Verse 5, music, instruments. I mean, this is just the biggest pep rally party of all time. And right in the middle of it, verse 6, the guy dies. Why? Because the ark stumbled. The cart stumbled, I should say. The ark began to stumble, and he just probably just stuck his hand out because he didn't want it to fall. Now, at this point right here, the question you ask in verse 6 determines a lot. If your first question is, why did God strike him down? You're missing the whole point. The real question is, why did Uzzah have the audacity to even touch the ark? If your first question, once again, is why did God strike him down? You're not getting it. He touched something he's not supposed to touch and a way he's not supposed to touch, the very presence of God. Well, he was just trying to keep it from falling. Go back to our original points. Your good intentions do not make you right with God. Sincerity does not replace obedience. If somebody sincerely says, I want to be right with God, and I'm going to do that by, by prayer and fasting and doing all these works... It doesn't matter how sincere they are, they're sincerely wrong because you're only right with God through Jesus Christ. The question is not, why did God strike Uzzah down? The question is, why did Uzzah have the audacity to even touch the ark? We have to focus on the glory of God. Why and how did the Levites and David forget that God is completely unapproachable in his holiness? Did they think that the amount of music... The amount of people, the amount of passion, the pep rally, and the new cart was going to make up for all of this? It does not make up for it in any way whatsoever. John Piper makes a really neat point here. He's talking about the Pharisees. He goes, what if you discovered like the Pharisees did, that you have devoted your whole life to trying to please God, but all the while had been doing things that in God's sight were abominations to him? He quotes Luke 6, 16, 15, Jesus speaking to them. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Someone may question this and say, well, I don't think that's possible. God wouldn't reject a person who's been trying to please him. But you see what this questioner has done? He has based his convictions about what would please God on his idea of what God is like. This is precisely why we must begin with the character of God revealed in Scripture. So if we stop here and say, you know what I bet God would like? He'd like a party. He'd like us to celebrate this art coming up. Well, Woody, can't you just see the staff meeting? We need to get a cart. No, not a cart. We've got to get a new cart. You're right. Lots of music. Lots of music. God loves music. And I want people, folks. I want lots. Yeah, that's right. And so they have this staff meeting, and they have the new cart. They have the music. They have the people. And they're just patting themselves on the back saying, to God be the glory. And the whole time, they completely utterly forgot that God's character is you don't go near the ark. This is why it's so very important. One commentator went on to say, was God's actions too severe? He said, we feel free to judge God because we lack a sense of his awesome holiness and majesty. The ark was as close to a visible representation of God himself as men would see until Jesus. Uzzah disregarded this. His death was a lasting lesson to the Israelites to take seriously the glory of their God. Do our language and our actions demonstrate that we mean it when we pray, hallowed be thy name? Do we truly care about the holiness of God? It was interesting. I had a chance to uh, share with a couple guys here recently. 
And so I was sharing the gospel with him. And so the subject came up about, you know, the classic, are you good or not? And, and the one guy was animate. I mean, one of the most animate people I've ever seen. He was good. I remember he even said, I said, so do you think you're good? He goes, I think I'm very good. He wasn't mocking. He was saying it's stressed. I'm very good. So we went through the whole thing. Have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever did any of that? So he admitted. He goes, you know, I'm a lying thief, all this other type of stuff. And I said to him, so, so what are you going to do when you stand before God on Judgment Day? Unapproachable holiness. And I remember him saying, I, I think it's just going to all work out. <laughs> I mean, it's like you and God are going to cut a deal when you get up there. It, it doesn't work this way. God is unapproachable holiness unapproachable it says in first timothy chapter six but i think i'm just going to show up one day and knock on the pearly gates and say hey it's me now i haven't done a pilgrim's progress reference in months i keep track of this type of stuff i don't know if you guys notice this or not but i i have not because my boys always say another pilgrim's progress reference but in pilgrim's progress if you remember correctly there's a guy that does not go through the proper gate does not stay on the path and christian says to him what are you going to do when you get to the celestial city, and he goes, I'm just going to knock and go in. So he shows him going to celestial city, and he knocks on the door, and he just assumes he's getting in. And at that point, he's torn to pieces because you cannot just approach God. It does not matter how sincere you are. It doesn't matter what your motives are. There is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.15. And so therefore, there is only one way to handle this. And the problem is sometimes when we're revealed with this, we respond like David. We get angry, verse 8. Have you ever seen that? If you actually share the good news, the gospel with some people, they get angry. And then what happens, verse 9, David's afraid. Now, who's David angry with in verse 8? It's kind of hard to tell. David could have been angry at himself. He could be angry at Uzzah. We don't know. But then he was afraid in verse 9. And what a question he asked in verse 9. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? That's the problem, David. You're trying to figure this out. You're not doing it God's way. Can you go with me to 1 Chronicles 15, please? 1 Chronicles 15. We're running out of time here, but i really like to get through the rest of this if we can. Please remember, and I don't say this to pick, you may have a loved one, a friend, that is very passionate, religious, and sincerely religious. But they could be sincerely wrong. They could be passionately wrong. We need to do things right. Please remember, Numbers chapter 4 says you don't touch the ark. Exodus 25 says you must use the poles, poles to carry the ark. Take here a look at 1 Chronicles 15. Uh, let's go ahead and start um, with verse 1. Now, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. But look what he learns. Then David said, No one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. And David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, and then he, that place that he prepared for it. Jump ahead, if you will, real quick to 11. Then David called for Zadok and Abathar, the priest, and for the Levites, for Uriel and Aziah, Joel, Shema, Eli, and Amnabah. And he said to them, You are the heads of the father's house of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I prepared it. For because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him about the proper order. 
So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. Then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to anoint their brethren to be the singers accompanied by instruments of music, stringed instruments, harps, and cymbals by raising the voice with resounding joy. I love that. David learned from his mistake. He went back, consulted the Bible. That's the term we will use. He consulted the law of Moses there, found out the proper way to do it, and he did it properly. Jump back real quick to 2 Samuel 6. We're not going to be able to finish the chapter. I want to at least finish this point. Verse 10, so David would not move the ark of the Lord with him in the city of David, but David took it side into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, who's also a Levi, so he would know what to do. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. Basically, that's showing that, that it was time to try this again. God was blessing them. It was time to try this again. 13. So it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Completely different. They're carrying the ark. They're offering sacrifices. Blood is being being spilled here as a sacrifice of atonement. This is the way it's supposed to be done. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David is wearing a linen ephod. And David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the trumpet. And that's where we're going to have to end it right there. But 17 real quick. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And next week we'll have to pick that spot up right there. Please let me say again, you can have passion, you can have good intentions, But if it's not biblically done right, it's not honored by God. It's just not. And the question, once again, is not why did God strike Uzzah down. The question really is why in the world would Uzzah even touch the ark? That's the holiness of God that we're not supposed to go near. And thank the Lord, as Hebrews says, we can boldly come to the throne of grace now because of what Jesus Christ did for us. So we are now covered in the blood of Christ. Now God has been appeased, atonement. And so therefore, now we can have peace with God and therefore we can come to him now through what Jesus Christ did. And David had to learn this the hard way. And I think it's important to note the Chronicles passage there where David went back, learned, and went back and did it the proper way as well. So we'll pause it there and we'll have to pick up McCall's response to this next week because time does not permit us to get into that tonight. Uh, any final questions, comments about anything here before we close up? Yeah, John. Real quick, on, on three, it says, and they set the ark of God upon a new cart. Who's they? I would assume that that would probably be the people where the ark was staying at Abnadah's house, his boys. I would assume they would. And my opinion with this is, uh, this is a little bit of the grace of God that he allowed it to go this far. And then God allowed this uh, bump to happen. And so therefore to show his holiness. Because God at that moment could have done something, but he chose not to. He allowed this to play out a little bit to see, to give us, I think, a deeper picture. Yeah, Rich. Did go on to eternal punishment? So we'll close right there, and we'll move on. Um, I, I, I'm just going to repeat what I heard a pastor say one time, and this is just one person's opinion. It's completely speculative. But they said Uzzah was not trying to do something blasphemous. I mean, this wasn't like Uzzah said, I'm going to go into the temple of God and pop the lid off the ark and look in. It looks to be a sincere, a put his hand out. 
I do not know what happened to Uzzah. The Bible is silent on that. And when the Bible is silent on that, I'm supposed to remain silent on that as well, too. So when we get to heaven, maybe we'll be beside Uzzah. I don't know. Yeah, Bob. Uh, going back to moving the ark, something that came to my mind is if I think if David would inquire to the Lord about moving the ark, there probably have been different circumstances too. It would have been completely different circumstances. And I think it goes back to the point that, that Amber made earlier. God is such a God of grace that he doesn't hold our mistakes against us when we're made right. David messed up at the beginning here, 2 Samuel 6, but when he came back with a heart of repentance and being right, God honored that. And that's the beauty of God saying, yep, I see your past, but I've forgiven your past. And I go back to the issue, though, of David's wives that's something we don't see David ever moving past, and that's why it constantly becomes a problem. But some of these other choices that David made, God in his grace says, I've forgiven that. And that's why the ark can be moved again, because God was a God of grace and second chances. Kathy? Yeah, I'm struck by the paragraphs of, I mean, Musa grew up with this in his household. It was in his father's house. Mm -hmm. There, there, there is a bit of, and, and it's hard to tell because we don't get into it completely. Um, I understand what you're saying, that the word casualness. I mean, that once again, they could have been like trying to be really sincere and passionate, but it still comes back to they're sincerely, passionately wrong. Um, but it is interesting that this is the next generation that's moving it, and maybe it wasn't ingrained into them. You don't touch it. You don't, don't touch it. So, in fact, if you go back and read in Numbers, it's, well, I guess it's been a while since we've been in numbers now. I lose track of time. But, you know, only the priests were supposed to be the ones who were allowed to move it with the poles. And they were actually supposed to go cover it up with a cloth. So other people, it says in Numbers 4, if I remember correctly, you're not even allowed to look at it. You know, it's the holiness of God. Anything else here before we close? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time. And, and Lord, maybe just um, Think about your holiness. I think we sang that song on Sunday, when I look into your holiness. Um, that's a deep thought, Lord, and I, and I really don't have much more to say on that other than, wow, just your holiness. Let us grasp that, that this week. Um, no matter the passion or the, what we deem sincerity, it's really just your holiness, and we bow in that presence of you in all. And we ask for your favor upon the um, prayer booth. May your light go out there, and may your witness be shown in your name. Amen. Real quick here in way of announcements. Uh, August, let me get these right here. Uh, back to School Bash coming up the 28th. And that's supposed to be from 11.30 to 1.30 here, activities for all ages. So if you've got kids from preschool to high school going back to school, come back. Tony always does a great job of making sure that um, that information gets out there. They start out the year spiritually on the right note. And what a wonderful blessing that is. And also the uh, Praise Fest coming up 17th. If you have any questions about that, right there's Jim and Miranda. They can answer those questions for you. Hard to believe coming up too is our September fellowship meal. If you'd like to sign up for that to help out, you can. If you have any questions about how that's taken care of, you can see Pat Rudder, and I encourage you to talk to her if, that, if the Lord is leading on that as well. And we have a real quick thank you I'd like to share. Miles says, Dear Harvest family, thank you for the prayers and the uh, compass during my recent stay in the hospital. They were both appreciated. May God bless all of you. Miles Rudder, and Miles is here tonight somewhere. There's Miles. Feeling better, doing better. Continue to keep Miles in prayer there as well. All right, I think that's most everything here.
feel like I'm forgetting something, but I think that's most everything. So, hey, you guys have a good week. God bless, and we will catch you guys next week then.